I find this generally true with Tibetan Buddhism. Their emphasis on compassion is huge. The whole thrust of Vajrayana, which is Tibetan Buddhism practice, is that you're not just working for yourself. You're in a field that includes all other beings. Any work that you're doing is equally for yourself and all other beings. And they just put a huge emphasis on compassion in a way that I find very moving and very real. Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from AboutMeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Short introduction today. As you can tell, I've got a cold. Some cruel trick of nature to give a man a cold in the middle of summer. But so be it. And it doesn't take away from the awesome interview with my very good friend, Richard Klein. So I'll keep this brief. This interview is really all about spiritual practice and developing our capacity for compassion in the context of Tibetan Buddhist meditation. Richard is an old friend of mine, an old mentor, and someone I love very much. He's been practicing meditation for several decades, and really only in the last, I guess, in the last few years did he start practicing in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So we cover a lot in this episode, and you're going to learn a lot about compassion and Tibetan Buddhism from Richard's direct and unvarnished experience. And to be honest, that's really what I love about this interview. It's Richard's authentic and raw disclosure of what it takes to really practice meditation with real commitment over the long haul. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Let's jump in. Here's my interview with Richard Klein. Richard, hey, it's so great to have you on the show. Welcome. It's great to be here, Morgan. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. So I think we can jump right in. And I'd love to start with your story. How long have you been meditating? For you, what was the catalyst that started you down the path of meditation? And I'd love to hear, really, if you could give us a general sense of the evolution of your practice or your path since you started? Because I know you've been practicing meditation for several decades. Well, okay, good. I had some interest in spiritual matters since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. I had some kinds, of, some kinds of little awakenings when I was a teenager. And of course, I, at the time, a lot of the Eastern Dharma was really just becoming part of consciousness here in America. Yeah. So I read, you know, Siddhartha, and I, I read all of Herman Hesse's books, and like a lot of yeah. people, and uh, and then even when I was in college, I had times where I I thought that my outlook on life didn't seem to really match too many of my peers' outlooks on life. I, I wasn't materially inclined, and ambitious, or 
worldly in, in that way. I was worldly in general, but not worldly in that way. So, and then um, the direct catalyst to getting involved in meditation, I think, was when I was living in California and doing emotional work. It was California. People were doing groups, all kinds of healing retreats. For I did one that was just for men, and mm-hmm. uh, it blew my mind. And started, I don't know, it just sort of kicked something off in my head that there was more. And that suddenly there was a, a door had opened. So there's more, you know, more than just what everything seems to be. Right. But it was really through kind of doing some emotional work uh, that I got interested in Buddhism, particularly. And mm-hmm. at the time, I had friends who were already meditating. They were Vipassana meditators. And as soon as I expressed an interest, Actually, a friend of mine took me around San Francisco. We we went and saw Swami Satchidananda. We went and saw uh, crazy Zen Master Rama, who came to a bed. And, and yeah. we went to see uh, Sung, Zen Master Sung Sanim, the famous Korean Zen Master, and he, he blew my mind. Just to set the scene a little bit further, what year was this? What time period? Oh, this would be maybe the mid-80s. Got it. Mid mid eighties. Anyway, so we went to see a, a lot of teachers, and I learned how to meditate uh, in the Vipassana tradition, the Theravadan tradition. I learned Vipassana, and I had very encouraging experiences right from the get go. So I knew I was mm-hmm. on the right track, and of course that was very helpful. And did you with Vipassana? Was that? Can you say just very briefly what is that practice? Oh yeah, I learned very traditional Vipassana, the way it's taught by the inside meditation people. It's not as opposed to like a Goenka style. So it's it's basically just yeah. a quiet, seated, eyes closed meditation where you typically focus on breath for concentration of, of awareness. And then as you deepen in the practice or in, in an individual sitting, you become aware of the arising of sensation, thoughts, feelings, Etc. And in the particular way I was taught, they were big on noting. So mm-hmm. you would you would make a mental note of things that were arising in your field of awareness, and like that. I mean, I developed a very strong daily practice, twice daily practice, and then started attending. I became a retreat junkie, doing traditional ten day intensive retreats. It's where you're you could really get a chance to deepen your practice. And these were the vipassana retreats. Yeah. How long would you sit in those retreats? How long would like a day of practice be? In the style which I learned, they alter, we would alternate walking meditation and seated meditation. And typically that would be at least 10 hours a day, if mm-hmm. not 12 combined. And then if you wanted to stay late and if you got up early, then of course you could stretch that to even up to 16 hours of practice. And uh, But again, you'd be more or less an hour seating meditation and then equal period of walking meditation. The walking meditation, I figured out there's a, there's a real synergy. Yeah. The, the walking meditation is just concentration. It's just to focus the powers of your attention so that when you mm. go and sit down again, the meditation, the stronger your attention is, the further you can go. The less you're knocked off your seat by obstacles of intense feeling or whether it's emotional or physical or thought mm-hmm. thought generation you sort of work your concentration muscle when you're doing walking meditation so that when you sit right when you do your seated meditation you're sort of a stronger yogi 
It's good. So it you start. Sorry, say it again. So it's, it's good. It, it works. I, I never could figure out how many people really made that the, that particular one-two combination really as an engine of practice. But I, I definitely, at a certain point, I kind of got it. It's like a it's an engine. It's like a piston. Yeah, You're firing on on two cylinders. Then it, it's very strengthening during uh, intensive practice. That's awesome. All right. So I want to move on from Vipassana in a second. But when you said you started to have in that period some encouraging experiences, can you just briefly speak about or describe, give us a little sense of what the character of one of those might be? One of the first hurdles to meditating is to penetrate the thundering wall of your own thought stream. Yeah. Because most mostly... Our entire world is, is really defined by incoming stimuli and our thundering thought stream. Yeah. And, that, and so, of course, in the whole idea of practice is that, that you're like, well, there must be something more. There's, there's more to things than just stimulus coming in and my thundering thought stream response to everything. So the first time I went to a formal group meditation with instruction, I sat down, I got the instruction closed my eyes, focused, and felt this huge, literally a huge wall fall on my head. And then I was still there. Very, it, was, wow. it was a very, you know, it was a very inspiring experience because yeah. I just felt the wall of thought just crash over me like a giant wave. Like when you go in the ocean and you're like, here comes a giant wave, I better duck. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, that. and I ducked and the wave went over me and I, and there I was, and, and um, I had this greatly expanded sense of awareness, and I'm sure I was somewhat elated. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so it was, it was a very good experience. Cool. So then moving on, you became a retreat junkie. Yes. And then take us forward. Obviously, you know, meditation can be powerful, and if you can meditate 18 hours a day, it, it gets very powerful, and I, I got really hooked on that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say about all that. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you hinted at it already. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I continued to have a lot of experiences. I had visions and mysterious things would occur and powerful dreams. And I think just sometimes in doing practice in an intensive setting, you you learn that things that ordinarily you would be perfectly, completely repelled by like physical pain thresholds, certain thought intensities, kinds of thoughts that you would just be repelled, but you'd be pushed back by your own experience. Yeah. And in and, and that way, contained, strangely but true, contained, restrained and contained by your own experience. No, not by actual outside forces, but by your own experience. So when you do intensive practice, you get the opportunity to break through those barriers in those mm. sense of those kinds of limitations and ultimately false identifications. So I was very enamored of all that. And so I liked doing intensive practice. Right. Interesting. What is your background? Like what was your educational background or training? Were you, did you come from a context or a family where meditation was part of your cultural milieu and also how were you trained? Were you, you're an artist, right? You were trained in a very liberal arts context. like Very liberal. Emphasis on liberal. 
Yeah. Just remind me a little bit of yeah. your own personal background and then how, how that affected the lens that you're approaching meditation with and this whole kind of unfolding journey. Okay. I was raised in the, in the in New Jersey, near very close to New York City, in a Jewish secular slash atheist household. My parents were very well educated. They, you know, typical, very strong emphasis on education. I was always very artistically inclined, and I was, I was yeah. sort of the wild one. And that was, to a large extent, encouraged. And in this regard, that did me well. I went to college. I studied music, composition, in an extremely liberal setting. It was Bard, I, I right? Bard College. Bard. I went to Bard College, yeah. Again, I had my own kinds of epiphanies when I was a teenager. I think even before that, I there was something about when I was against my will. I was When I was 12 years old, I wanted to go to, I was like, Mom, I don't want a bar mitzvah. I just want the, the money, and I want to go to California because the hippies are there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was 12 years old, and they were like, we're just going to ignore the child because yeah because they couldn't they didn't make sense to them it made a lot of sense to me but when i had to do training you know you go to training to do it for your bar mitzvah i would go to and it was a conservative synagogue god bless them it was so it was kind of sort of not orthodox but really not reform it was quite conservative it was sort of the straight deal and i'd mm-hmm. go on saturday mornings and it would only be old it would only be men and some of these guys were very old so they were world. They were still World War One veterans. Oh my and, God! And there were just these old guys, and they would pray. And I would go, and I'm just, a, I'm just this kid, and the, they would pray, and it moved me. Mm. Like even just to talk about it now moves me. There was something about what they were doing and how they were doing it that you can hear it in my voice to this day still deeply moves me. And so there was obviously there was some resonance. <laughs> strong resonance there to the spiritual life. So, but that was an early incidence of, I just became aware that I was in awe, you know, I was just, I didn't know what they were praying to. I had no idea. I couldn't see behind the curtain at all, but I, I, saw, I could see them and I could see what came over them and the kind of depth of devotion and love really that was, that they were exercising in the, and that really moved me a lot. Wow. Still does. Yeah. But otherwise, I was just sex and drugs and rock and roll, really. Yeah. I've seen pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, fast forward again. Back to San Francisco. Yeah. So you were on this journey of kind of deepening immersion in your practice over five or ten years. Take us from there to present day, because I know a lot happened. My trajectory at that point, I was a retreat junkie, and I had come to a crossroads in my life in terms of my interest in, in Buddhism. At that point, I was really considered myself a Buddhist. I had very, very strong connection with Buddhist teaching and considered myself a Buddhist and had to make a decision. What do I want to do with my life? I was in my late 20s, and being the practical guy that I am, I decided to just go whole hog being a meditator. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I didn't. I didn't really have career plans to interrupt. So definitely a crossroads. I had to think about it and and decide. And as much as I loved my worldly friends, and I I did and do love them, I decided that I was gonna 
really pursue my spiritual life fully. At that time, I, that meant in terms of what I was planning, going to Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts, and doing three-month retreat and, you know, possibly uh, getting involved there. And they have a long-term yogi program. Even at that time, it could stay in intensive practice for very, very long periods of time. So that was my plan. It got rudely interrupted by a renegade teacher uh, named Andrew Cohen, who actually came out of that same Vipassana kind of group of people in England and in America. I went and met him and uh, completely changed my life in the most radical fashion, changed me in a radical fashion and changed everything thereafter in a radical fashion. And Mm. I became his student and more or less stayed with him from 1990 to more or less 2008. Mm. So I I was his student uh, throughout that time. And we, yeah. Everyone, just so you know, this is obviously, you may have gleaned this already, but this is how Richard and I know each other. And how we became good friends was, of course, we lived and practiced and worked together in the, in Andrew Cohen's spiritual community. Richard was an older brother, mentor, and also my writing coach while I was there, among, among many other roles. And occasionally I got to return the favor and uh, apply my own form of uh, torture to him in yoga classes. That's true. <laughs> but anyways, this is how Richard and I know each other. And we've been friends since I first met you in... Uh, 2004-ish, no? Well, yeah, and briefly in 1997 when I ran that... Oh, yeah. Fox Hall, yeah, the marathon. That's right, that's right. So what came after Andrew Cohen then? I left Andrew's community in 2008. Of course, all the years that I was his student living in his home community. We did a lot of meditation, a lot of open awareness practice, just seated, stable, upright, seated, typically eyes closed, although later I thought it was a little looser. And this open awareness of all arising phenomena. And I think the, the fundamental underpinning for the practice was the experience of not being and therefore not identifying with thought and feeling, but identifying fundamentally with the, the ground of all being and having that be the, the backdrop and the ground and the, the universe in which all of our individual experience unfolded. So so that was the kind of open awareness practice with him. That was always a daily aspect of life. Yeah. At times we did a lot of practice. When I left his community after, I mean, at this point, I'd been a meditator and I'd been doing practice for decades at that point, I I sort of had to take time to do nothing. So I, I stopped doing any practice at all for at least a couple of years. Just I'd worked with these tools for such a long time. And I was, again, a, kind of at a, at a crossroads in terms of many, many, many years of very completely all-consuming practice. And then I, I was a world, you know, I was out in the world again, and I wanted to see what was what, let the dust settle. And I just learned this weekend from a Rinpoche, Namkai Norbu, it's good to spend time integrating and contemplating. 
Mm. There's practice time, and then there's integrating and contemplating. And so I've spent a couple of years trying to integrate and definitely contemplating. And at a certain point, I reconnected with someone who had been very, very close, Dharma meditator friend, who's a meditation, who teaches meditation now in the Seattle area, actually, unaffiliated meditation Mm -hmm. teacher. We reconnected, and she told me about a Tibetan teacher that she had found and had very, very good experiences with. And this is a person who had not had good experiences with teachers across a wide range of traditions. And she was like, this guy, his name's Sony with a T-S-O-K-N-Y-I, Sony Rinpoche. And she was very encouraging. And anything that my friend Jude recommends, I take interest in. Because mm-hmm. I don't know any or many wiser people. I went, my wife Michelle and I went to see him. He happened to be shortly thereafter doing a little weekend thing at Kripalu Retreat Center, which was very near where we lived in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And so we went to see him and just felt so good <laughs> to be in the bosom of the Buddha Dharma again. You know, after years of being on the cutting and at times ragged edge of a non-traditional teacher in a non-traditional community, to encounter the Tibetan tradition was, it was like falling into the deepest down comforter you could ever imagine. You felt the grace and the love and the stability of a very, very ancient tradition that was still very, very much alive. Interesting, in, my, in the early years, and this was part of my own instinct and impulse also, and it, it definitely coincided and collided explosively with Andrew Cohen, was that the traditions can kill your impulse towards liberation. I had had this sort of thought and feeling way before I met him that the traditions can be stultifying, and that's across all spiritual traditions. Simply, right. simply by because they become organizational, and the organizations can then basically overwhelm the always radical spiritual impulse in its pure form. It's always an unruly thing, and the traditions can really squelch that. But after 20-plus years on the ragged, raw edge of really just being out there on our own, I no longer really felt I ran the risk of having my own inner spark smothered by the tradition. Yeah. So in so in my case, coming back to the tradition, it was like a long lost spark finding a, a net a beautiful nest to continue to grow in. And that was my experience of coming back to a, a tradition which was completely new to me in terms of a practitioner. Mm-hmm. And so from that time on I I became interested in Tibetan Buddhism and through this teacher Sony Rinpoche learned Dzogchen, which is one of the three main practice paths in Tibetan Buddhism, it is essentially a path of meditation practice in a very high form. Yeah. So you landed in this tradition. It sounds like it was a very soft landing. And now you're practicing Dzogchen, which is, as you just described it, one of the three main branches of the tradition, the practice veins of the tradition. Can you share a little bit about what the actual practice is that you do. I'll do a quick Dzogchen 
best yeah. of my ability. Zogchen, I'm not a meditation teacher, so don't, you know, I can say what I like, I guess. But Zogchen, <laughs> my understanding, in my understanding, basically, the difference between a mindfulness meditation and Zogchen is that in, in mindfulness, you're working with subject object. You are sitting, you're the one being mindful, you're the one following your breath, you're the one observing thoughts and feelings, you're the one relaxing, you're the one releasing. Maybe at a certain point, all of that dissolves and something else unfolds where subject and object dissolve. And that in, in the context of a mindfulness practice, that would be, you know, it'd be pretty awesome fruit of practice. And I think it, you know, it's the kinds of thing that happens when you practice that inspires you to continue practicing because those kinds of experiences are, they just light you up. You're like, they just make yeah. all the practice feel like it's got a purpose. And the purpose is to pull away the veils that obscure our natural native ability to have a very, very, very huge view of, of what's real, of who we are. So in Dzogchen, there's no subject object to do practice. It, it basically, it's start to finish its non-dual practice. The whole idea of Dzogchen is, is to cultivate in informal practice, but to cultivate always at any time, in any setting, the awareness of no subject, no object. I would say the other strong aspect, aside from just being a, a non-dual practice. Before you go into that, just... If we can just say a little bit more, because this term non-dual, it's a tricky one, right? And mm. I thought you did a really nice job when you were describing it previously in the context of mindfulness. Can you just say a little bit more, what is subject, what is object? When you're saying when that subject-object split dissolves, that's how you were qualifying the non-dual practice, right, I got which is Ogchen. That, that, that starting point is moot. It's a right. moot point anyways. Right. I would say broadly in the Buddhist teaching, one of the fundamental pillars, one of the main aspects of the Buddha's teaching was there is no separate I. There is no separate self. Mm -hmm. Even though as, as some people like to call us, you know, skin encapsulated beings, we operate and identify and go through life as individuals, but that our sense of ourselves as separate is fundamentally erroneous, it's wrong, it's, it's not flawed, it's wrong. That our ability to perceive everything that exists actually transcends any lim such limitation as separate I. So the, in Buddhist teaching, there's always the separate sense of I. And fundamentally, all of Buddhist practice in terms of a path is to pull apart and attack from many different angles and ultimately destroy the separate sense of self. So when I say subject object, I'm talking about this, a, the idea that we're always sort of locked into this separate sense of self, the me, Richard or Morgan or whoever we are, that there's a separate entity that's always relating to everything and everybody else. That there's, so that's the duality is, that's the subject object duality is there's me and there's everything else. So everything that's happening, I'm perceiving. It's me. Everything that's happening, it's happening to me. If it wasn't for me, not, you know, 
So that's the duality. Got and, it. And Zogchen, there's me. Is that good? Yeah, got it. Is that good? Yeah, there's me, the subject, and then there's everything that's not me, which is the, that I'm perceiving, which is the object. Right. And if you think about how the world unfolds always, that it's that separate sense of self, not obviously beloved Mother Nature made us to be individual entities that fight for survival and that fight for ascendancy. And, and on the other hand, work to cooperate and be successful as a species. We exist as individuals in this vast ecosystem here on this planet. And within that vast ecosystem, yeah, if, if you think about it that way, you really are. You're an individual. You're separate. You, yeah. you are, you're walking your own path. On the other hand, that's the cause of suffering on both a very local scale, the kind of suffering that we as individuals experience because we don't see the larger picture. Particularly mm -hmm. in the West, we suffer because we feel isolated and we feel alienated, isolated, struggling, unsupported. We're defensive, we're aggressive. We have all these needs and confusions and ideas and, and there we are. And obviously there's a lot of suffering both individually and collectively that results from our separate sense of self struggling, struggling with ourselves, struggling with other people, struggling with the world, struggling for everything. There's a lot of struggle. So I mean, it's all, it's all basic, you know, it's, it's fun, you know, it's basic, it's, you know, it's Buddhist, you're hitting it's it. Buddhism, basic it's great. teachings. In the Buddhist teaching, he said, well, there's, there is a solution to all this suffering and, and it really has right. to do with opening up our, our view of what's really going on here, who we really are and what's really happening and opening up ultimately so that our separate sense of self is really dismantled, is destroyed to the extent that we identify with all of creation. Okay, good. So you were telling us about Zogchen and I had asked you to clarify this distinction about non-duality and you were just beginning to describe the practice of Dzogchen as it was different from mindfulness practice and the starting point really being beyond that sense of duality, right. beyond subject and object. Right. The other way that I understand Dzogchen, and again, I'm, I'm a very, very fledgling practitioner and student of it, but the other way that it, I've come to understand it is what they call nature of mind teaching. So the, not, the sort of non-dual presentation of Dzogchen is a little bit more philosophical, you know, abstract. And the little more nuts and bolts way that it's presented it has to do with nature of mind. So nature of mind, my limited understanding, really has to do with, in the, in the Dzogchen teaching, a big emphasis is on seeing and understanding, realizing and comprehending what the nature of our mind actually is. Because mostly we think our mind is just this giant computing machine in our head, yeah. you know, through which everything, particularly in the West, it's an overdeveloped organ, overemphasized, overburdened, overdeveloped organ, and we just use it and rely on it. So we think of ourselves as what we think, and we see the world in a certain way because of our experiences and because of what we think. Almost everything in our world is a product or a byproduct of what we think. And in Dzogchen, it is by its own definition, the very most direct path to fruition 
is Dzogchen, because you go immediately to, well, what is the nature of mind? And surprisingly, it is possible to directly experience in a very global sense what the nature of your mind is. They teach that the mind is empty. The problem is we identify with the content of our mind, all the contents. Mm-hmm. And in Dzogchen, you actually take this very big step back to actually observe the machine itself, right? including all of its contents. But most of the time, okay, so most of the time when you're doing like a mindfulness practice, you're putting your awareness in a container where you actually can become aware of the content of your experience, right? So mm-hmm. you, you imagine you're doing mindfulness practice, you're sitting quietly, you're forming sort of a bubble of awareness within which you're able to see directly your experience arising in every moment and you're relating to it in a certain way. So that is creating some sense of separation and distinction between what's arising in your experience and your sense of immediate identification or grasping on or pushing away of your experience. Right. So in Dzogchen, you're taking a a second step back. That's a good way to think about it, I think. So you're taking a separate step back so that in your awareness, your bubble of awareness is now 360 degrees and unlimited. So that even the sense of the person sitting and focusing their awareness is fully in your awareness. And then therefore your mind and the contents of your mind are all within that sphere of awareness. And it's an open awareness practice, but the emphasis is really on the all-encompassing nature of awareness. Yeah. And, and the, the fruits of that practice are these brief, usually brief instances, which are generally termed Rigpa, where you feel, you know, where you're in your direct experience, you experience the natural awareness, the energy, and the compassion of our most primal state as sentient beings, are completely unencumbered by thought, feeling, past, present, future, etc. Zogchen is usually taught as many small experiences over time, accumulated over time. The only thing I also want to say is that in my own experience, it is pretty much in line with doctrine, you know, how it's taught. Because as long as you have a body, right, as long as you're living and breathing and having a body and these things, you're, you're an ent- you are an entity, you are a, a, a being, and, and there is a basic primal state to, the, to your beingness. And as long as you're alive and functioning in the world, there are certain ultimate uh, nature of your experience. And in Dzogchen, it's just a direct path to actually experience what your ultimate nature is. And again, there's this very, very great energy that's just of awareness, very pure, not not located in the body, not identified with any thought or feeling, not contained inside your head, energy and awareness. And, and in my experience, always tremendous, tremendous compassion, interest, energy, compassion. I still relish the inspiring moments when you get small fruits of practice. And, and in Dzogchen, that's that's what that's what they're like. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. And so, would you what you were just describing? Those experiences point towards the original nature of the mind, as 
what you were describing before, clear, unobstructed, empty. I mean, you could use that word empty. Yes, definitely, but, definitely empty. But that being a definition of my, of the mind or minds, nature that's, that's very fundamentally different than how we tend to think of mind as what your modern Westerner, like the two of us, would tend to experience as our mind just chattering away nonstop with all sorts of different streams of narrative and yeah. X, Y, and Z going through our head. Yeah, they, so they, that. they say, they like to say, because they're Tibetans, so they, in their heritage, they had a lot of nothing to look at Tibetans because of where they <laughs> live. But uh, they, say, they always space. say mind like, mind like sky. Mm. So they, and, they, and in that way, it's like a, as object-focused thought, you know, obsessed Westerners particularly, we're focused on the, the objects in the sky, the things, the, the weather, the clouds, the birds, the planes, the... You know, the rain, the the sunshine, the drones, the drones, <laughs> the, the black helicopters, you know everything. So and yeah. and uh, kites, and so when they say mind like sky, they say, well, all of those things. That's not mind. They're not even related to nature of mind. Those are just objects in perception. They don't even have fundamental reality. They literally, the Tibetans, they literally mean it when they say it that all of the objects of your experience have no intrinsic reality, none, zero. So it's a real head turner because we assign ultimate reality to the objects we perceive in Buddha Dharma and strongly emphasized in, in this kind of practice. It's quite, it's totally the opposite. And the whole idea is to become, I would say, self-identified with sky. Because then you see that the mind is just sky. It's it's this huge, vast, empty canvas against which all objects appear and disappear, but which in itself is pristine and limitless and you know infinite. So yeah. So what does Tibetan Buddhism have to offer the West that's different than say Transcendental meditation, which is, as you know, incredibly popular in the West, or vipassana, or more popular forms of mindfulness, like mindfulness-based stress reduction. Can you give us a sense of, to crudely say it, the different value proposition that Tibetan Buddhism brings to the table? I mean, first of all, I would say that all of those things are incredibly valuable, that mantra practice, you know, like TM, which is essentially a, a mantra practice, in my understanding, and mm -hmm. mindfulness, pasta practice, and stress reduction practice, which, trust me, I still sometimes do. <laughs> you got to do. Yeah, yeah. You got to do what you got to I am with you. Bro. So, hey, if you look at it, really, all of Buddhism, all came from India. All these things all originated from the same period of time in the, in India and they're all informed by these same roots mm. and you know they've they've, they've developed in different cultures to take on many forms but it's interesting that they all come really arise from the same spring be that as it may I mean personally you know in my sort of mature stage of my practice like a lot of I would say and I, I encountered people like this even when I was starting out a lot of Westerners would go and do, I mean, this, I'm really only speaking about very dedicated practitioners here, really, but I'll just do it quickly. But 
a lot of people, they would be very, very dedicated practitioners or maybe even go and ordain in different traditions, you know, be it Zen or, or Theravada or Tibetan Buddhism and be monks and nuns and do, you know, really dedicated and then return to their Western lives and, and kind of just be a mess. I'm lucky, fortunate in that the Dzogchen teacher that I study with has a very solid grasp of the difference between Eastern practitioners and Western practitioners. Buddhism, it's all about causes and conditions, which means that, that you, you've got to deal with what you got, how you are is what you have to work with. And causes and conditions for most practitioners in the West boil down to ramped up, overactive mental apparatus and underdeveloped and in many, if not most cases, not just underdeveloped, but poorly developed, if not distorted emotional body. In most of the other schools of meditation, the more mindfulness-based ones, there's not a distinction really made in the traditional teachings to deal with those sorts of formations. They're just considered thought and feeling formations that you would just experience in your mindfulness practice, and you would treat them the same as you would treat anything else. And that's all well and good if you're actually able to self-liberate through your practice the kinds of karma, the kind of causes and conditions that you're made of. I think it's uh, for many, many, many of us in the West, those teachings can fall short. Or we, we don't have 15 years uh, to go practice in a cave to actually be able to um, develop fully enough so that those things are resolved. So a lot of times we have a mindfulness practice, which is awesome, or we're just doing it for concentration awareness, which is awesome, or we're just doing it for stress reduction, which is awesome. But the fact is that there may be a lot of work to do on the emotional body, which just simply isn't uh, well addressed or directly addressed or especially addressed in, in the Eastern tradition. So this is going to be a two-part long answer. But so that so that's one thing. So in my own experience, right, after all of my... 25 to 30 years of meditation practice, um, mm -hmm. I came out at the end, you know, I'm, I'm a well-informed, highly developed, emotional, you know, mental person and didn't have a tragic upbringing. But uh, after all my years of practice and accomplishment and effort and everything else, I still came out being, you know, like going, wow, I feel I'm a mess in this and such a fashion. And I definitely am not confused about things that a lot of people are still very confused by. I'm aware that I'm, I'm not trapped in certain kinds of vicious neurotic cycles that, that most people and certainly most practitioners often remain trapped in. But be that as it may, I still felt like, man, I still have a lot of work to do on my emotional body. I'm a mess, you know, in, in some way. So I found that after all those years of practice and everything, as a Westerner, I had to make a decision. I made a decision to go and specifically work to resolve other kinds of deeply rooted karmic inner conflicts that were obstructing my development, obstructing my practice. I would say uh, Ken Wilber's integral theory is very instructive in this area, and I, I encourage people to become familiar with that. He's very clear about lines of development and that we have many native lines of development. And if you wish to continue to develop 
as a mature person, as an adult, you have to attend to all of your lines of development, not just the strong ones, not just the ones mm-hmm. you like. And to the extent that you neglect or ignore or are unaware of certain lines of development, and for most Westerners, that they tend to be the emotional ones, the rest of your development will become stunted, stalted, stopped. And I really strongly encourage, I, I think it's great to get a, even just a cursory understanding of Ken's work, levels of development, states, stages, lines of development. It's very instructive. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I will put yeah. links to that in the show notes, everybody. Yeah. And then to come back to Tibetan Buddhism, again, I think I'm fortunate in that the teacher, the Zogchen teacher that I have, he has a very direct recognition of the fact that most Westerners, they have very, very good understanding, too much understanding, way over their heads, usually, in most cases, understanding, but emotionally, um, really just nailed to the floor, and that you have to learn to work. Even in such an exalted teaching, teaching as Dzogchen, and definitely even in basic practices, like uh, mindfulness practices, it makes sense if, if things seem to be obstructing you, they probably are. And in our Western culture, it usually seems like a good idea to attend to that need and not ignore it and not to use practice exclusively to deal with emotional kinds of uh, issues. We need to find resolution for our karma on all levels. And every tool at our disposal is worth picking up (laughs) and using if it's effective. Um, In Tibetan Buddhism, I would say in terms of a practitioner, I find this generally true in Tibetan Buddhism. Their emphasis on compassion is huge. The whole thrust of Vajrayana, which is Tibetan Buddhism practice, is that you're not just working for yourself. You're in a field that includes all other beings. Any work that you're doing is equally for yourself and all other beings. And they just put a huge emphasis on compassion in a way that I find very moving and very real. They exude it and they promote it and they teach it and they generally, and I'm really generalizing, and I feel actually quite good about generalizing in this case, they seem to really have it. (laughs) So even in a teaching like Dzogchen, compassion is fundamental in their teaching to the most primal experience you can have of your own nature Compassion is, you know, awareness, energy, compassion. And I have experienced that myself. And I just think in terms of being a practitioner in the world, both for our own benefit and for the benefit of all beings, uh, definitely for all of our fellow humans, but certainly all beings, that kind of a teaching to me seems paramount, irreplaceable, precious. And so, so I'm always very uh, gratified practicing in the Tibetan tradition because of their emphasis on compassion. That's awesome. So two-part follow-up to that. You've said you've really seen the impact of that and felt the impact of that in your own life. How, number one? And, and number two, well, first, can you answer that? Just how? What specifically? How has that played out in your own life? What different choices have you made as a result? What different behaviors? What different actions? Oh, yeah, good. That's a good question. I think two parts. One, it, relating specifically to practice that I'm doing in the Tibetan tradition, because I'm a newbie, 
I'm doing preliminary practices, which is a, a rather lengthy, unless you're doing it in a retreat fashion, is a rather lengthy years in terms of lengthy dedication to a series, a sequence of practices. There are many specific iterations of it, and I'm doing one particular iteration of it. And it's, it's a couple of hours of practice a day if I go through the whole thing. And they're called alternately preliminary practices, or in Tibetan, nundro, or in the general category of purification practices. Okay, so after all of my years of being a practitioner, I was like, purification practices, why does that sound so good to me? I should be pretty purified by now. I've dedicated almost my whole life to the spiritual pursuit, and uh, you know, I, sh- I should be pretty clean, <laughs> squeaky clean by now. Huh. So of course, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. And so I've, I found personally stepping into the Tibetan tradition. So before they want to step you up into in the traditional setting, before you would ever get Dzogchen actual teaching, you would do a lot of preliminary practice. So, okay, now it's, it's in the West and the rules are changed, but still, I want to do this. And the, a lot of the specific stops, you, you know, along the specific set of practices in, in the Nundro, it's a set of practices, right? And it's a sequence, and many of them are just very specifically, very explicitly and graphically about purifying oneself. And I just was like, what an incredible thing to do. What does that mean when you say, for our audience, like for someone who's never really thought about like what it means to purify themselves, like what, just start like from scratch. What do you mean? Yeah, it is a stretch, right? Because like it only took me like 58 years of life and ups (laughs) and downs and ins and outs and everything else to get the point where I'm like, yeah, look how arrogant I still am, you know, Hmm. look how much I still worry about myself really you know look how much i don't really care about other things look how much i'm still involved in my story and whatever my condition is you know good bad or otherwise really but look how closed i am still really you know really how how solid a formation i am and you know whether it's the beliefs i have or just unconscious condition or just you know whatever your karma condition is where you come from how you've lived what you think, how you're put together, all these things, and how arrogant I still am about it all, and how much I still want to. I mean, it's probably always for everybody, but you always want to. You always want to cash your chips and hey, you know, I've accumulated something. I want to cash. You know, I want my reward now. I want to get something. I want some. You know, <laughs> you know. So there's a you know we always want some reward. We and we're very arrogant. It was a recognition. I still think I know a lot and. Still think I'm smart and still think and all these kinds of things. And then you sit yeah. down and you're like, in the tradition, when you do purification practices, they're, they're not gross. You know, you're not beating, you're not, you're not like self flagellating. Like it's not crude. It's a little more sophisticated than that. But you basically you do some interesting things in terms of, because they use visualization a lot in Tibetan Buddhism. So, and you would, you're always doing something in a context where you visualize and you sort of build a relationship in your mind, obviously where you're relating to the greatest attainers, the greatest teachers, the greatest enlightened beings, the gods, the deities, and those are, they, they become your audience, your inner, you, you, it's very fascinating, really. You actually build an inner world where you're presenting yourself in, in an aspect of active humility or asking for blessing, asking for purification, visualizing purification, but always in this very, just not by yourself, 
you're not alone. You're not like right. me and myself in my little and my mind world trying to do this. Yeah. You they you're always visualizing yourself in a very large space where your audience, as it were, are the most enlightened, liberated, grace-filled, loving, you know, whatever Christ-like, if you wish, entities. So you're doing purification in, in a very loving environment. And that mm. seems very crucial also. Mm. I just found it to be very nourishing. It's very, very nourishing, especially for Westerners. I don't think we, particularly Americans, emotional nourishment isn't something we had or know how to cultivate right. or even know about. And so in a practice like this, if you can find that, it can be extremely nourishing and healing and liberating. To answer your question, how has it changed me? I, th I think once I sort of found myself squarely seated in that posture of not assuming that I'm owed anything and not assuming that I know anything and more likely assuming that mostly probably pretty arrogant person, all these kinds of things. I started to find that it, I've started to think differently. My view of the world, mm -hmm. um, I would say in, in very explicit, you know, in very kind of minutiae terms, it's like I'm aware of what a critical, judgmental, <laughs> evil-minded person I am. And, you know, but instead of being like, don't take that the wrong way, everybody. He's not. He's not really evil. But. Well, you know, it's like <laughs> this is like, just the this is just the view from the inside. A lot of, a lot of people, you think like this, the shit that you think but don't say. A lot of it's not very nice. right. Yes, right. So right. that's what I'm talking yes. about. And then yeah, it didn't seem satisfying to me to just let that be because it it seemed to me at this point that I was by just letting all that inner voice just be, I was really sustaining, and in a way, even if it didn't seem like I was feeding it and cultivating it, I no doubt am and have been still cultivating that sense of self that's really pretty nasty. It's really not that nice. It's, it is very harsh towards self, which really isn't very helpful, and harsh towards others, which obviously isn't very helpful. And it doesn't really, it didn't really matter to me that I didn't act out on it overtly. I realized that I was acting out on it, even if it was on a, on a subtle scale. And, and in some cases, it really was not a subtle scale. We beat up on ourselves, and it's not subtle. You know, we have all that kind of thing. And it, it's, it's just, we tend to downplay it. And, and at a certain point, I was like, it was just hanging out, man. I mean, it was just coming out of my pores. And I was like, this is kind of gross in my experience now. I should pay attention to it. So doing Tibetan practice, I think it's um, it's made me realize that I shouldn't just take that, let that stuff just go and take it yeah. granted and assume it's harmless. Really? I was like, don't assume it's harmless. <laughs> At a certain point in your development, even if it seems harmless, it probably isn't. And then, I know, it's just you want to soften the edges, you know, soften the edges. You see how people are, you know, it's like uh, we were cool. We're, we're chilled out and somebody bumps into you in line or you, or you see or you bump to the guy in front of you in line and then you just snap around. And that's very common in our culture to be that way. Somebody cuts Definitely. you off in tra traffic and you're like a rage filled beast for a moment. You know, oh, yeah. this is very common. Traf it's very accepted. Yeah. It's very, but if you start yeah. to zoom in on that in a bit of a more examined way. You, you might start to think with that. That's, that's really not cool. 
that, that's, that's actually out the not worst. a good thing. And it's, yeah. and it's not in a superficial way, you might think it's possible to address the causes and conditions behind that sort of compulsive, impulsive response that are worth calling forth as challenging as that may be to call those forces out. And that it is challenging to do because we don't want to call those things forward. We try and suppress them generally, um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, but still at a certain point in your practice, you, you may have to go in and get them and bring them forth, encourage your development on all, you know, on all lines of development, as Ken would say. Mm. And, and I find Tibetan Buddhism at, at this point in my mature years of practice, it just really is the right medicine at the right time. One reason I love meditation is that it hones my sensitivity yeah. to the presence of that, which is, as you've alluded to a couple of times, unlimited or undescribable. And it helps me to be sensitive to that in myself, in others, and just as part of the fabric of reality. And of course, it colors my life in really fundamental ways. And that for me, that's a strong motivation in my practice. So we're kind of wrapping up here, the interview, but I wanted to ask you this question because you've spoken to it in a lot of different ways throughout, but in a simple way, why do you think it's important to meditate? And why do you practice? Why do you practice? It's important, I think, for two reasons. One is if we want to develop as human beings, we have to... I don't know, if you didn't want to develop your humanity, I don't know why you would. I mean, I guess you could meditate just to reduce stress, you know, just to increase ability to concentrate and focus. I think there are, there are just certain kind of basic tools of existence that meditation is helpful for. You know, that's fine. I think that that's they're the best tools for the job. Even if you just are doing it for relaxation or for attention and, you know, ability to focus, I think that's great. Beyond that, it really has to do with expanding your sense of reality, your sense of identity to be more inclusive and to be more permeable and to be more transparent and transcendent. So, of course, even the most basic meditation practice has the power to step out of the compulsive stream of identifying thoughts and feelings and creates this very unique, very precious kind of space in your awareness where you're not just locked into the experience of thought and feeling. And in that space, there's in and of itself, there's fundamental respite from the endless onslaught of thought and feeling, which never goes away anyway. You get some respite from it. And as you continue to meditate, hopefully, you develop a greater and greater and greater sense of space apart from the thundering, relentless experience of thought and feeling and a greater and greater sense of an identity beyond thought and feeling, which hopefully, you know, if you, again, it depends on what you're interested in, but the ceiling of your being just expands out and expands and continues to expand and continues to expand and it continues to expand. And I think in and of itself, that sort of action of meditation, that meditation can produce 
does two things. I mean, I think it makes it sensitizes you, makes you more of a sensitive human being, and that's a, a good thing. We obviously need to be way, way more sensitive to ourselves and our and our surroundings than than we are. So, a sensitivity on the one hand, and wisdom on the other. You know, the wis the wisdom of knowing what's really going on here, why we're here, here, what our purpose might be, what our true nature might be, what it might all be about. So meditation has the sort of power to develop both those aspects of our being. Nice. If you could give your 20-year-old self any piece of advice now, what would it be? If I was going to give myself advice from when I started, even, even given how much I threw myself into it, my advice would be throw yourself into it. Really throw yourself into it. Okay, I think the advice that I would give to anybody interested in meditation is congratulations. I, yeah. Because because I would think when you look at the world and you look at the way the world is, and particularly, this is my personal feeling, particularly in the developed world, where we're headed and how huge an impact we have on each other and on the planet and how little we understand about who we really are and what we're really doing here. There isn't anything you could do that would be of greater value than spiritual practice. And if you can make spiritual practice your life, that much the better. I, I would say if, if you're interested in meditation, developing an awareness and a sensitivity to who we really are what it's really all about being a sentient being and what's really possible, then there's nothing greater that you can do to contribute to life on planet Earth. Nice. I think that's a wrap. Thank you, Richard. You're it's been great. Welcome. Thank you, Morgan. Yeah, it's been great to have you on the show. Great to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Richard Klein. I put some resources for you in the show notes. If you want to learn more about Tibetan Buddhism, you can find the show notes at www.onemind.com. That's www.onemind.com. Also, please, if you enjoyed this podcast, head on over to iTunes and leave me a rating and a review. I'd be super grateful. Also, this podcast It's sponsored by our Meditation for Life free guided meditation series. Just head on over to our website at aboutmeditation.com and you can sign up to receive those free guided meditations. So that's all for today. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time.